Good morning, my name is Peter Nittler. I am the college pastor here. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Yeah, yeah. Oh, stop. Oh, come on, come on. But stop. Yeah. No. All right, so I got to confess something to you. The rest of the pastors don't know I'm going to tell you this, okay? I'm going to let you down a little secret. There's a thing called pastor power. I just made that term up, but I'm, I'm confident that it exists. Did you know that if you're a pastor, people in the church will listen to you when you speak? People in the church will seek you out. They will call you. They will text you for, for like life's biggest problems and life's biggest questions. And I can't prove this, but I'm pretty confident that we could be just barely funny and people will laugh at us. And I got to tell you something. <laughs> I got to tell you something. Feels fantastic. <laughs> but then you have an experience like I had this last weekend and you spend a, a weekend at a bachelor party for your best friend from high school and to them you are not a pastor. You're just their buddy Pete. And they don't ask you about life's important questions and they don't lean in when you talk and they don't laugh when you're not funny. And I got to tell you, <laughs> I don't care for it. And it's in those moments I can tell that pastor power has actually done something to me. It has altered me in some way. It has gotten into my head and it's gotten into my heart and it's bought a little bit of property there. And this is, of course, relatively harmless, but there's a lot of stories that are not harmless, where pastors have used something like pastor power to do really heinous things, which is a scandal, but it's also not surprising because power is a beast. And it does something to us. It's done something to me. And this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be basking in the story of how Jesus Christ is the true and better David. And what we'll see through this story is that, among other things, this is a story about power. It's a case study on power. Who should have power? What does power do to us? And do we have any hope against the coercive, well, power of power? And this is how we're going to tell the story, uh, because talking about the David story and all the different characters is a little bit like playing with those Russian nesting dolls. Just in this case, it's like the rusty, Russian nesting dolls of trueness and betterness, like a true and better crescendo ultimately leading to Jesus, the truest and the best. So the story of David, we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. So the story of David is in the book of Samuel. And Samuel is a really interesting guy in the scriptures. His main job description at the start is that he is a judge. And the people of Israel didn't have a ruler at this time, with sort of Moses and then uh, Joshua, and then there wasn't really a defined ruler. So God would sometimes raise up um, these people called judges, and they would be the de facto leaders of Israel. And um, quite frankly, the judges were a disaster a real train wreck, but not Samuel. He's one of the rare good judges, and he's also a prophet. He listens to God. He leads with faithfulness and goodness. And his sons, though, do not. His sons are another train wreck. And so the elders of Israel, they come to Samuel, and they say, listen, enough is enough with this. They say, you are old. <laughs> Subtext, you are going to die soon, and your sons do not walk in your ways. So now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We're done with these judges. Give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. And Samuel hears this request and he is bummed out because he knows, no, 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 you don't need a king. 
Guys, God is your king. And so he goes and he, he prays to God about this. He brings this up to God. And um, in a move of real cosmic compassion, God says to him, Samuel, relax. They are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me from being their king. So the picture is that God's people are, are looking around at everyone else, all the surrounding nations, which they're actually supposed to, um, to bless and show how to do life well. But they're looking at them like, man, they're doing life well. Sure, we have God, but they have a king. We want a king. We want to be like them. So even though it is a slap in the face to God, God says to them, give it to him. Give it to him. And so the monarchy in Israel is born. And here is what's a little bit confusing. So just stay with me for a second. Though even though God had hoped that the people would want him as a king, he had already told them what he would want in a king should the situation arise that they asked for one. Does that make sense? So it was way back at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 17, uh, well before the monarchy existed, God gave them the rubric. And we don't have time to read it all, uh, but he essentially tells them what he wants in a king is someone that will not be ruled by violence and not be ruled by sex and not be ruled by money. And he wants the king to be a Bible scholar. The king should copy the Bible, their own translation of the Bible, and read it and meditate over it and, and then serve and rule out of this deep understanding and this resolute obedience to the wisdom of God. That will make a good king. And so it is with this backdrop that we get introduced to our first doll, a doll we will call Saul. And in 1 Samuel 9 is when we're introduced to him, and it says this, that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Let's just stop there for a second, my friends. I'm sure that you are thinking the same thing I'm thinking, that this is a textbook example of the Warren Harding era. And if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, even though he was, in fact, a president of the United States of America, that's okay. You should feel okay about yourself. He's unanimously considered one of the worst presidents that we've ever had. And, um, but the Warren Harding error is the phrase coined by Malcolm Gladwell to explain why he got elected, because he was not terribly bright, his speeches were confusing and dull. He was most famous for playing poker and for womanizing and for drinking. So how did he become president is the question. And as the story goes, a smoke-filled room of decision makers just decided, doesn't he just look like a president? The newspapers would say his head, features, shoulders, and torso had a size that attracted attention. The word Roman was occasionally used in descriptions of him. So what happened was people looked at Warren Harding and saw someone of extraordinary handsomeness and distinguished looks, and they jumped to the immediate and the erroneous conclusion that that meant that he was also a man of courage, that he was also a man of intelligence, that he was also a man of character and could handle power to devastating effects. So let's read again the introduction to Saul, Israel's first king, and see if anything jumps out at you. Saul was a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than, all, than any of the other people. So why did Saul get chosen as king? He's tall and he's handsome. Doesn't he just look like a king? 
So we have these two very different portraits of what a king can be, don't we? In Deuteronomy 17, God wants a king that is righteous and is a Bible scholar. And then the, the Israelites get for their first king, they get Warren Harding. And so the story of Saul becomes a case study for us. When someone with no discernible virtue or character is given an enormous influx of power, there is no defense against it. There's nothing buttressing the corrosive effects of power, so it just takes over. And Saul gets taken over. He is unfaithful. He is impatient. He is untrusting. He is impulsive. He's envious. He's paranoid. He's never willing to own his mistakes. And he disrespects and he disobeys God's command gets to the point that God fires him from the job of king. And then Saul does what people in power tend to do. He clutches on and he holds on, unwilling to let it go, and lets it drag him further and further into darkness. But God tells him, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. You're fired. I'm giving it to someone better than you. <laughs> better than you. And then God tells Samuel to fill his horn. Samuel's the one that is the prophet and the judge. He fills his horn with oil and head to Jesse's house. And because you're going to be anointing a new king there. And so our second nesting doll, the true and better Saul. So Samuel goes and it's a little bit like a sort of a future king fashion show. Jesse's seven sons, starting with the oldest son, Eliab, they all sort of come out before Samuel and audition for the role of king. And we'll pick it, the story up in chapter 16, verse 6. It says, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see what's happening here? It's the Warren Harding error. Again, Samuel sees a big, tall, handsome, powerful young man, looks powerful, looks charismatic, and he thinks, this looks like a king. This must be what we need. And in something that we will see over and over again this morning, God then subverts the expectations of that power. And he's saying to Samuel, you are distracted by outward appearance. I don't need someone who looks the part. I need someone with a righteous heart. And so son after son is brought before Samuel, all of Jesse's sons, and none of them are it. None of them are the one. And so Samuel says to Jesse, listen, are all your sons here? I'm, I'm supposed to anoint a king. None of these seem to be it. And Jesse says, well, they're basically all here. There is, of course, the other one. There remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. Bring him here. Verse 12. They run off and grab this afterthought of a son. We'll find out his name to be David. And it describes him. Now he was ruddy, which means he sort of had tan skin and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So Saul was chosen because he was tall and handsome. And then Samuel wanted Eliab because he was tall and powerful. And then there's David. And that word, he's described as the youngest. But the most common, most ordinary definition of that word, you can see it in the footnote usually in your Bible, is it's youngest, it's also smallest. He's small. 
He's not tall and powerful looking. He's small. He didn't look the part. He looks like a shepherd, not a king. He was insignificant. He was forgotten by his father. And yet there in Jesse's living room, the true king of Israel is anointed with no fanfare, no cavalry, a king picked and exalted not because of human standards of power and prestige, but picked because of God's values of humility and of righteousness. And as David's story unfolds, we see what it is that God saw in him clearly. The next chapter is the story of the famous showdown between David and the tall Goliath. And David, of course, is not imposing, but he is courageous. He's the only one that steps up and says, yes, I will go into this fight. And if you remember, Saul tries to give him a bunch of armor. He's like, hey, you need this for protection. And David says, "Uh uh-uh. No, God has protected me more than once. And so I do not need your preservation clothes to go into this battle. I have my slingshot and I have a resolute trust in the goodness of this God that I'm fighting for. And that's enough. Quip, boom, Goliath down. Victory, not through might, but through trust. And with this victory, the scales of power in Israel begin to shift. The people love David. And his approval skyrockets and Saul's plummets. And Saul freaks out, of course. And this little power-infested heart of his comes to the conclusion, I gotta kill David. I gotta take out this threat. And so much of David's story, remember, he is the anointed one of God. He is the rightful king of Israel. Much of his story is spent wandering in the wilderness, running scared through caves, trying to outrun the murderous, power-hungry Saul. And it all culminates in this profound moment. See, Saul gets a a tip as to where where David is hiding in the wilderness, and he sends 3,000 men to go after him, which seems like a bit of an overkill. But if you control the resources of the state, you can do with them what you please, I suppose. And as he searches, Saul goes into a cave, and the text says he goes to relieve himself. And I don't care how powerful you are, Everyone does it. And what happens next, straight out of a movie, okay? It happens that this cave is the very same one that David is hiding in. And the men in David's camp, they see this and they're like, dude, like this is it. They're sort of doing the political math in their head. Like you, David, are the anointed one. You are the true king of Israel. That guy is on your throne. And hello, he's trying to kill you. You are never going to have a better shot than this. He's defenseless. There's no one around. This is your time. The jury will understand. (laughs) Strike him down. But David doesn't take the shot. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he as he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And so Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Let's talk about this for a second. Was this a smart political move? I don't think so. Probably not. Saul was unpopular. People wanted him gone, and and people probably would have cheered this. They loved David. This was as clean a chance as he'd ever get to grab the seat of power. But was it faithful? Think about the humble patience and the confidence in God it takes to know that even though life is pretty bad right now, even though I'm running in the wilderness and I probably shouldn't have to be, God has not abandoned me. 
And if he says that I will be king, I will be king. But not like this. Not like this. I will wait for him to crown me. I will not crown myself. And so it's interesting that that same confident trust that we remember led to his victory over Goliath is the same kind of confident trust that doesn't just lead to victory, but, but brings him to and allows him to accept this patient suffering as he awaits his coronation from God. He waits for God to crown him as king. So we remember God wanted a king who would be driven not by the things of man. He wanted someone to be so in tune with his wisdom and the way that he sees the world, the goodness and righteousness, that it would just infuse every decision he makes, even hard ones like that one. Under, um, and he, what he did is he wanted David. And so once Saul dies and David is crowned, we get to see what can happen when there is a king who is more interested in God's wisdom than his own power. And so under David's kingship, we see Israel be united. They were once a disparate form of tribes, and then now they are united in him. Under David, the Ark of the Covenant, which is a sign of God's presence with his people, is moved to the top of a hill in Jerusalem. It's as if God's presence is looking over all of God's people. It's sort of like we're in the Garden of Eden again. It's sort of like heaven on earth. And it's here, at the height of his power and the height of his righteousness, and his effectiveness, that it all falls apart. You know, when Eve ate the fruit in the garden, it says that she saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight, and she desired it. So she took it, and she ate it. And this little formula, see that something looks good, desire it, take it, it's one of these repeated melodies that we've talked about that happens over and over, particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's meant to show us a fundamental human error, that trusting our own wisdom, just choosing to go with whatever seems good to us, more than trusting God's wisdom is what leads to our ruin. And the downfall of David happens when he sees something that looks good to him, and he takes it. It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David... I'm pregnant. And it gets worse. Ashamed, David plays the powerful person's most favorite card in a moment like this, cover up. So he sends his generals. He's not even doing it himself. He sends his generals to put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband's on the front lines of the next battle, hoping that he will die and this little political problem of his will go away. No one will have to know. This is the portrait of someone corrupted by power. This is a man who is using the resources of the state to rape a man's wife. And then, with the infrastructure of the military that he controls, kill that man to cover this up. This is the corrosion of power. What happens when you have power, and a lot of it, and it corrodes you, you end up thinking that other people exist for your benefit. You'll take all that they'll give 
to you. Human beings to you become tools or toys or trash. And it's one thing for Saul to be knocked down by the seductions of power, but David? David was the humble one. David was was the righteous one. If David can't do it, who can? And so if we're looking back at our dolls, we remember Saul was morally vacuous and power corrupted him. So we needed a true and better Saul, and we got one. David was humble and righteous, and power corrupted him. So we need a true and better David. And it doesn't come in the kings that follow after David. It's a horror show with those kings. And eventually Israel is divided, and then eventually Israel is exiled. It's really bad. But through these scars and through the exile, there are these promises of God, that God has actually not forgotten, his people has not forgotten his promises, and that he will one day give them a king, and that king will be, in particular, a true and better David. Book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And Jesse, of course, David's father. So David was the original shoot from the branch of Jesse. And now Jesus, or now, spoiler alert, this next king will become a new branch from Jesse. It will be a new David. And he will receive the spirit of the Lord and he will rule and he will be exalted. He will be lifted up. In other words, he will have power. He will be a king. And this king will turn power upside down. This king will turn power upside down. He will not look like Warren Harding. Look what it says. He said, it says he will have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He won't use his power to oppress people. It says his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, but with the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then through this upside-down kingship, he's going to turn the world upside down. This is one of my favorite poems in all of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 11. The wolf in this new world, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf will lie down together, and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child, if we remember, by the way, what we know about snakes and human beings, let's read about this right now. The nursing child in this new world shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So we got wolves hanging out with lambs, not eating each other. We got lions not devouring the fattened calf, just spending time together. We have babies playing with snakes. This king will transform this dark and chaotic world into one of peace. It kind of sounds like heaven on earth. Surely, if this king came, he would be the final nesting doll that we would need. And so if this was part of your imagination, these promises, can you imagine hearing Jesus of Nazareth's first words in the Gospel of Mark? It says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
And that sentence, man, we don't have time to unpack it all, but it's loaded. It's like one of those seven-layer dips where you dip your chip and you got a, a whole slew of different textures and flavors coming at you and they're sort of falling on top of each other. But they all coalesce into one beautiful taste of cheesy, whatever, beanie goodness. And every word in that sentence is worthy of a sermon. But here's what he's saying. He's saying the king has come. He's saying the king has come. I am that promised king. I am the true and better David. I, I'm here. All those promises will start to come true. And all those promises and all those hopes, we see them just lived out and incarnated as Jesus lives his life in the Gospels. And there's this little passage I love that's right before the Sermon on the Mount. It's like this little peek uh, into the green room before a big speech. And it shows us quite a bit. It, it's in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And it just says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Healing, that's power. So his fame spread, that's power, throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him. It's easy to read, the, read right by this because we want to get to the Sermon on the Mount. But this passage shows us quite a bit. It shows us that Jesus had power. He had the cosmic power to heal and change reality. And he also had social power. He had influence. People would follow him. So then the question would be, what did he do with that power? Who benefited from his power? Who followed him and listened to his teaching? And this is profound to me, that the Sermon on the Mount was not spoken to a bunch of influencers, was not spoken to the powerful to go spread the message. The Sermon on the Mount was spoken to a bunch of cast-offs and what's-their-names, and it was to them that Jesus delivered this message, blessed are who? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Friends, this is the world turned upside down. This is not how, unless you have been very intentional to shed your cultural biases, this is not how you or I or our neighbors in Yolo County tend to think about power or about blessedness. We think, generally, blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the influential. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the intelligent. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the strong, the independent, the comfortable, the rich. But King Jesus is doing something different with power. And we see it most clearly and most beautifully in his coronation. Let's turn to the end of the Gospels. John chapter 19 says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of, a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Eventually, the people cried, crucify him. Crucify him. This king has so turned power upside down that his coronation, he's been given a crown, and he's been given a robe. Other gospels say that he's given even a scepter. That his coronation comes in the moment of deepest suffering, the moment of his deepest sacrifice. This is when he is most kingly. 
This is how God shows us what kind of king he is. He is not one bent on self-preservation. He is not one who will take his power, go to the ivory tower, and let it corrupt him. He's one who will go wherever he needs to go to save those who need saving, to save those who are powerless. This king will not be corrupted by power. He will redefine power. This king will not take and hoard for himself, but he will give himself away. This king will not take life away, but he will give life to the lifeless and the powerless. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is the true and better. David, the last doll of this set. So let's close this morning at looking at how the early Jesus followers made sense of this story. Let's go to another one of the high points of the scriptures, Philippians chapter 2. And see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. And as we read, whether this is familiar or not to you, try to chart in your head the direction and the relationship of power. So Philippians 2.5 says, King Jesus, and by the way, that Christ means anointed, essentially it means king. So we can say, it might even be more accurate for us, we might understand it better if we say King Jesus. So, King Jesus, though he was in the form of God, He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Jesus has the most power that one can have. He's at the top of the chart, and then just systematically he gives it away. He empties himself for the good of others. He becomes a man, not just a man, but a servant. And and he subjects himself to death, and and not just death, but but a criminal's death. He's as high as he can be, goes as low as he can be. And then therefore, he is exalted. It is in his giving himself away that he finds exaltation. It is in turning power upside down that he establishes true power. And I think that this stuff right here, this is the, the most, one of the most compelling things about Jesus. This is something that our friends and our family who do not know him, they need to see this. But Paul says it's, it's not just something to marvel at. It's not just a fun fact about Jesus that we can cheer for him about. It's actually a pattern that we are supposed to follow. This is a pattern for how we need to deal with power, for how we live our lives. We know the king. See, this marvelous description of Jesus, it's not like a tweet or a meme that's just acontextual. Here's a true fact. It's actually written in context of of teaching Jesus followers how to live. So we just have to back up like four verses and we'll see what it's all about. Philippians 2, 1, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's saying to us, follow your king. 
The way that Jesus uses power ought to be the way that Jesus' disciples use power. Don't be selfish. Be humble. Don't think about your needs. Don't think about yourself. Think about others. This is the foundational ethic and the foundational text for the 12, which is the College Life Leadership Team. And we talk about this at the start of every year. And the image we use to talk about it is one that I know well. It's the Christian summer camp. And in my two summers at Mount Hermon, I was never, not one time, confused about the power dynamics. It's very clear who has the power at camp. It's the counselors. Okay? The counselors are, like, imbued with this, with this coolness. It's like that staff shirt is like an Iron Man suit or something. Campers just want to be you. Campers will copy you. They will listen to you. You have the chance to make their week or break their week. And usually that kind of clear power dynamic is, can be dangerous. We've seen what power does to people, right? It's a breeding ground for corruption and abuse. And yet so many campers end up saying that camp feels like heaven on earth. And the very logic of a counselor is to take all of that social power, not to ignore it, like you know you have the social power, to be responsible. Take all that social power and give it away to those who don't have power. As a counselor, you exist to bless the camper. Camp would fall apart if the counselors didn't do this. If the counselors just like kicked the campers away and just hung out together because they have the power and they'd have a lot of fun together, um, it would be a train wreck. And so is it possible that at camp it actually isn't the games and it maybe isn't even the teaching that they experience, or the Bible studies, it, that, that makes camp feel like heaven on earth, but maybe it's experiencing this in real time. Jesus' style of upside-down power, just experiencing a shadow of this, can change a life. So friends, the true and better David didn't stop being king after he resurrected. He ascended into the heavens and is, what Christians believe is that he's currently seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning as king. Not just the king of your heart, but the king of kings. And your invitation is to follow him. To be like him. To turn things upside down in where you have influence. And to partner with him as he is making this dark, dark world feel more like heaven on earth. So we obviously don't have time to think about all the implications of this. So just a few questions to help you get started on this journey. Where do I have power? Who can I ask what it's like to be under my power, to see if it's gone to my head? What would it look like to turn that power upside down? What would happen if I did that? What would happen to people if I did that? And as I think about this, how will I stay close to my king in this process? Let's pray. Father, sometimes it can feel like our job is to know stuff about you and um, to amass all the knowledge we can amass. And sometimes sense that you want us to marvel at your beauty. And that was my experience marveling at how, how beautiful you are and how beautiful your story is and the story you call us into. And I feel changed and shaped by it. And so I pray that that, that would happen to the people of this church, that all the different places that we have influence, that you would move us and, and take us and help us and show us what it would mean to turn it upside down, that you would turn it upside down through us 
and that through that there would be shalom in Davis and peace in Woodland and West Sac and all the other places we're near. God, would you do this good work? We know this is who you are. Help us to serve you, our King. Amen. Wow. Um, Thank you, Peter, for the sermon. This was a blessed one. And, um... My my prayer for every one of us is that in any way we have yielded to the seduction of power. In any way it has slowly, probably unintentionally coiled itself around our hearts. That by the grace and by the Spirit of God, we start to unentangle ourselves from its web. So we can lean into the example of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not think himself as God, but shed the power and being found in form of as a man, he became obedient to the cross, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name such that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of things in heaven, of things on earth, and of things under the earth. Amen. Amen. Um, moving, moving on, um, one of the ways we can join in... Oh, by the way, is Rick Morris here? Yeah, please come on. Yes, it's coming up. One of the ways we can um, continue our worship is through giving. Um, so if you want to give you can either use the box at the back or you can give online on, on our website via Tightly and that's one way to give thank you Nick um, also if you wanted to fill the connect card and you, or you have filled it already please when you're done after the service take it out to the connect table and someone would get to meet with you and if you're new you get the chance to get um, to exchange your connect card for a coffee gift card um, I have a few announcements. I'll take the first one and then we could co- co- come with the next. <laughs> Coming up this evening is a time of prayer and worship. Wow. Um, worship and prayer night tonight is at Fellowship Hall by 7 p.m. Well, let me, let me sell it to you briefly. You know, that's in Philippians, Paul, um, Peter, Peter read. In chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible said, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you know, let your request be made known to God. And what I just want to say is, um, for some of you who are parents, you're getting ready for your um, kids going to school this week, you might just want to come and spend time with God in prayer. For some of you who are going through life's tough seasons and you're looking for answers, it's a place to come. It's a place to be in God's presence in prayer and in worship. For some of you who are struggling with uh, and just looking for resolution or you just want to pour yourself out before God, we're inviting you come this evening. I, I can assure you that time in God's presence among other people worshiping the King of Kings and praying to Him is time well spent. So, um, 7 p.m. Fellowship Hall, please be there. Um, and I now invite Rick Morris to give us the financial briefing. Thank you, Gozian. 
For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick Morris. I am the current chair of your elder board here at FBC. Uh, so I'm just going to give us a quick little uh, financial update, a few different things. So first of all, you can see behind me right here, uh, our uh, year-to-date giving, financial, excuse me, fiscal year-to-date giving against expenses. You can see that we're running a little bit ahead right now. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. It's just incredibly encouraging to see that, uh, as most of you know, we've dealt with some financial challenges over the last few years, and we spent the last couple of months really trying to dig in and figure out the best approach to take uh, in addressing this. So we're off to set a really strong start here, and again, I am so profoundly grateful to see this. Uh, let me consult my memory here. Okay, so um, like I said, we, we will be continuing to watch over the course of the year, um, but things are off to a great start here. A couple other relevant things that are coming out of, uh, a couple other relevant things uh, here, and especially coming out of last week's uh, discernment forum. Uh, first, so we've received a lot of supportive feedback from the congregation about the idea of doing kind of a pledge drive. So we are going to move forward with a pledge drive with the goal of ra raising an additional $80,000 over the next year. Uh, first, uh, we started moving forward with that. We've already raised $29,000 in pledges. So again, thank you very much. Uh, it's so encouraging to see that. Uh, if you would like to participate in that and you consider this your church home, we have anonymous pledge cards uh, sitting in the lobby right now, or I would call it the narthex because I grew up liturgical. Um, they're just right on that round table out there. Like I said, they're anonymous. Um, this would just be a pledge of additional giving over what you're currently giving. If you're not prepared for that, that's fine. Um, but if you are, you can take a card there. You can drop it in the offering box. Or if you're not worried about anonymity, of course, you can give your card to a staff member, an elder, text it to somebody. Um, all of these are uh, viable options there. Um, th the purpose of this is not really to follow up. We're not going to be hassling you about this in any way. It's just so that we have some more data for our financial planning over the uh, coming year. Next. We will be very soon circulating our recommendation for this coming year's budget or the rest of the year's budget. Uh, so I want to make very clear this budget recommendation will not be recommending any staff reductions for the year. Yeah. That is entirely due to the generosity and support of the congregation. So again, thank you. This is... Uh, it's an extremely difficult thing for us on the board. I know it's a difficult thing for us as a church. So thank you again. Um, last thing here, we will need to vote on that budget. It's not official yet. So next Sunday, August 27th, uh, we're going to ask you all to attend a special business meeting in the fellowship hall right over there. Um, everybody is welcome. If you are a member, you will be able to actually vote yes or no on that budget. So please do, if, you, if, you, if at all possible, make time to come. Uh, it won't take too long, but this is how we kind of come together as a church, make our plans for the rest of the year, and step out together into this next phase of our financial and spiritual discernment. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you, Rick. I, um, can we just stand up as we receive the benediction? Church. As you go forth into your week, may the peace and the presence of God go with you. In Jesus' name, amen.